evening. Glad to see everyone is here. It's it's really a joy uh, to see the way we're growing. You know, we got we got a band now. How cool is that? Like it's really it's really great, and and I appreciate the music selection you guys do. Uh, this really helps us get our mind focused off of whatever's going on this week and onto the Lord. Well, guys, I have a question to start off our evening tonight. Who here has ever had someone do something really bad to them? Kind of only a few people? Wow, I, I'm shocked. Well, I, I really thought there'd be more people like, yeah, you know, someone, someone's done something bad to me. Uh, you know, maybe they, they said something rude to you. Maybe, maybe I used the wrong word. Maybe I said really bad. Maybe just mildly bad. Like, who, you know, someone, someone's done something rude to you. They took something that belonged to you. Maybe they just weren't thinking, and they did something that caused some side offense. Like, everyone here, right? I know everyone who has siblings, your hand should be up, okay? <laughs> I, I know it. Like, like, you're playing, your sibling takes your toy. Maybe you've outgrown that. Maybe not so much. Maybe the toys are just more expensive now. I don't know. Uh, now, now, how many people have ever done something really bad to someone else? Same, same sort of question. You took something that wasn't yours. You said something rude. You just weren't thinking you caused some slight offense, yeah? Oh, yeah, it's, it's all of us, right, guys? Uh, of course it's all of us. We are all sinners living in a fallen world where we hurt people through our actions and in turn are hurt by them. And that's why at some point all of us have to forgive and seek forgiveness. And thinking about forgiveness, it got me wondering about whether it's harder to ask someone for forgiveness or if it's harder to forgive someone when they come to you in repentance. Because it's important as Christians that we practice asking for forgiveness and practice forgiving others as the need arises. And after thinking about it, personally, I think it's kind of harder to forgive someone when they come to you. Like, it can be intimidating, right, when you have done something wrong, especially like if the other person doesn't know it. Like, you've gotten away with it completely. They don't even know that you have taken what is theirs. Uh, like, maybe a hat. I don't know. Uh, but they don't know. You got away with it. And you go, you know what? That's not right. I have, I've offended this person. The Bible told me to go and be reconciled with them. So you go and you find them. And, you know, that's intimidating. But once you confess to them, depending on the severity of it, that's kind of it. Like, that's, that's the emotional piece. But if you're on the receiving end, you know for a fact that the person who has just come to you has caused an offense against you. And so that kind of bristles your heart up a little bit. And yeah, if they're asking for forgiveness, they've had to deal with all the emotions leading up to this point to get the courage to do so. But now you're having to deal with the emotions fresh. Like, wow, okay, uh, you, you really sinned against me, and now I'm supposed to forgive you? Like, it can be really, really hard. When I was growing up, my parents had a set of friends that were so close, we adopted them as our aunt and uncle. And their kids were cousins. Like, I was, I was um, embarrassingly old before I realized we were in no way related to these people. For real. <laughs> like, that's how close they were to us. And their son, Mark, was my absolute best friend in the world. Uh, Mark was the sort of kid who could take boring things and turn them into amazing adventures. Like, I would look at a, a tower, right? And I go, this is a, perfect, a perfectly functional piece of cloth for drying off one's body after showering or bathing or playing in the pool. Like, that's what I do when I look at a towel. Mark would be the sort of kid who'd be like, 
I'm going to take this towel and the clothespin, and now I'm a superhero, and this is the game we're playing. And, and I love that about Mark. He was an amazing uh, kid. He just was always thinking. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't always think, was there enough supplies to go around? And so he came up with this superhero idea, and uh, there weren't enough for his friend's rescue. And, uh, you know, and Mark wasn't exactly in a sharing mood at this time. And, yeah, we were not, okay? We were young kids. Uh, and so my feelings were hurt. And then Mark and his family left. Because, uh, you know, they're just here visiting on vacation. They lived in San Antonio. Uh, and, and when they left, you know, I was unwilling to say goodbye to him. Because I was still mad. Like, he didn't apologize. I didn't care. Like, my feelings were personally hurt. And yes, it was petty of me, but after they left, I went up and I ripped up a photo I had of him because there was anger and murder in my heart. <laughs> and yes, it was petty, but come on, I was nine years old, guys. Uh, still, at that age, I should have taken a moment to consider my actions because forgiveness is one of the defining traits of the Christian life. We must demonstrate both a willingness to forgive when we are wronged, and we need to demonstrate a willingness to go and seek forgiveness when we wrong others as well. Now, in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, we're told, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, see that forgiveness, it is a command. It's not just, oh, it'd be a good idea to do this. This is an absolute command. You are to forgive others just as the Lord forgave us. But our fallen minds, they can be, they can be a little funny in the way we rationalize things sometimes, right? Like, it's almost easier, at least in my heart, this is how I see things a lot. It's almost easier for me, like if someone came in the back door right now and started shooting up people, and then he apologized, like I, he, he went through the trial, he was witnessed to in prison, he came to Christ, and there he is being sentenced, and he comes and he confesses his absolute repentance. Like it's easier in my heart to forgive that person who acted in their sinful ignorance than it is for like my close friend who comes and offends me. Like my heart just wants to hold on to that for some reason more. Well, for tonight and the next two Wednesdays, we're going to be in the book of Philemon looking at forgiveness. So go ahead and be turning there. And it's a very small book in the New Testament. It takes up a single page. Like, honestly, I was researching this, and all the commentaries, the, the introduction took up more pages than, the, than the, the letter itself. So it's just after Titus, and it's just before Hebrews. So hopefully you can use those two goalposts as uh, your reference to figure out if you've not gone far enough, or if you've gone too far. Now, as y'all get there, I need to ask you this. This is going to show my age, I think. How many people here are familiar with the book series called Four Dummies? Okay, okay, good, good. This is more people than I thought. Um, thank you, leaders. It made me feel better. Uh, I'm glad I saw a couple of youth hands as well. Uh, but the Four Dummies series of books, they were super popular when I was a teenager. Like, they had just come out. Uh, and each one of these books would convey the title of, you know, Microsoft Word for dummies, uh, DOS for dummies, uh, Shakespeare for dummies. These were the sort of books they would, would run. And each one was written at the lowest possible level. And the idea was to take your little grandma 
who had just bought her first computer ever. And, you know, tech squad had come in, they had set it up, and she's there sitting there trying to figure out how this thing works. And it was designed for her to be able to go through it and, you know, in about 100 pages or so, get her to the point where she could call you and be confident enough to have you help her at that point. Like, this is just to get to the starting line. Well, Philemon is basically the Bible's forgiveness for dummies book. Like, if you struggle with forgiveness, this is the book of the Bible we can turn to. Let's go ahead and look at our passage for tonight. We're just going to be looking at the first seven verses of Philemon. Reading God's Word, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which, which you have for the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brothers. Well, the title for this evening's lesson is going to be The Character of the One Who Forgives. And the main point we'll see is when a believer makes forgiveness an integral part of their character, it will be evident in their love for their fellow believers. And this is all up on the screen, so if I go quickly, it's there. And it's always in the NBC app. You can pull up these lessons, and I make sure that whenever we have this, it's available. You can get there later uh, and if we're going too quick at any point. But to give you a rough outline of where we're going to be, we're going to first look at the who, the where, and the why. And this is going to be verses 1 through 3 of Philemon. Then we're going to look at Philemon's proven character in verses 4 and 5. And finally, we'll look at Paul's prayer and expectation in verses 6 and 7. So let's go ahead and we're going to look at our first section here. This is verses 1 through 3, the who, the where, and the why. The letter to Philemon starts off by naming five specific individuals in one big group. Uh, the individuals are Paul and Timothy. They're the ones who are saying this is from, and is written to Philemon, Apia, and Archippus. And then the group it mentions is the entire church that meets at Philemon's house in Colossae. Now, this isn't trying to say that Timothy helped Paul write this letter. When he says, from Paul and Timothy, he's not saying, hey, we got together and we had a powwow, and we said this is how we should word this and this is how we should phrase it. Uh, that's not what he meant. And he's also not trying to say that this is really too, uh, I try, I'm trying to get this right, but I can't do it. Uh, Apia and Archippus, as well as Philemon. Uh, Paul is including these as a polite consideration. Like, uh, do any of your parents still do this crazy thing every year called writing a Christmas letter? Anyone? Yeah. Okay, so my mom did this too. Like, I, my mom still does this. Let me rephrase that. My mom still writes these letters every year. And we're the first family where we actually have to count every line. Like, she does, here's what's going on with Matthew. Here's what's going on with Daniel. We count our lines. Like, is mom really representing each one of us fairly? Uh, because in our family, we have uh, sin issue of not forgiveness. And it's something we're working on. But each year, my mom would write this, and she would say, from the Bennets. And now, did I help write this letter at all? No, I didn't. But the only thing I did was make sure I had my number of lines. Uh, 
I was in no way involved in the writing process, but my mom still includes me as part of the people writing this. I mean, sometimes we say, oh, I look forward to seeing so-and-so when we get to see them again. Oh, look, you know, Thomas came with you this year, and we, look, we so look forward to seeing Thomas when you come again. Well, the letter's not being written to Thomas. It's being written to her, her, her friend. Thomas is just a kid. Uh, but we do these polite formalities to let them know that we care about them and we love them. And that's what's going on here at the beginning of the letter. Paul is including Timothy so that the people he names knows that Timothy cares for them, for their well-being. Well, who are these people being uh, addressed at the beginning of the letter? I think most of us know Paul. Anyone doesn't know Paul? Used to be Saul of Tarsus, persecuted church. Okay, good. We all, we all know Paul. Good. He's the man that God used to pen many books in the New Testament. Uh, and most of us, I think, are familiar with Timothy, Paul's young protege who was sent to set up a church, and Paul wrote several letters to him, instructing him on the, the manner that he is to faithfully shepherd the church of God and how to bring up other men to support him in this ministry. But what about the three individuals that this is addressed to? We know less about them. Uh, and the things that we do know about them, we kind of have to glean from context clues here in Philemon and Colossians. Uh, but what we do know is that Philemon was a rich believer who lived in Colossae, he had a home that was large enough to host the church that met in Colossae, and we know that he was a slave owner. And it's not just that people met at his home. Paul addresses him as a fellow worker. Uh, Philemon clearly was involved in the church, and he ministered to his fellow believers. And he's, just, he's especially called out for the way he refreshes the hearts of the saints. Appiah was most likely Philemon's wife, and was a believer as well. That's probably why she was included in this letter, because it's, you know, to your husband and also to your wife and your children as well. Spoiler for what's about to be mentioned here about Archippus. Uh, but Athea was probably Philemon's wife. She was a believer, seeing how Paul addresses her as our sister. And then likewise with Archippus, who is probably related to Philemon and, um, and Athea, most likely was their son. Uh, however, Archippus is referenced here in Philemon as well as in Colossians. And when we see him mentioned in Colossians, Paul specifically tells him to see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, this is a good instruction for all of us here. Whatever ministry God gives to you, see that you fulfill the ministry God has given you. However, the fact that Paul is including this at the end of the letter, this is probably indicating that maybe he was the pastor at Colossae or that he was a faithful a worker, perhaps in an official position in the church there. Regardless, these three named individuals are most likely included because they are all in Philemon's immediate family. You see, there was a long and drama-filled series of events that lead up to verse 1 of Philemon. And we're going to see through our study that Paul is making an impassioned plea for Philemon to practice forgiveness. Uh, I'm going to ask, how many of you have ever gotten into a shall we say, spirited disagreement. Maybe a few of us here. Uh, I got three siblings. I've gotten into plenty of spirited disagreements in life. Uh, and how many of you have been in the middle of this hypothetical disagreement and an authority figure comes in? Mom and dad. And they come in and, uh, you know, you were the last one speaking, so you're the one who's in the wrong. And that's, that's, or you're the older one. That's the way these things typically work. Whoever was speaking last, whoever's older, it's your fault. It doesn't matter what's going on. Uh, the younger sibling, 
me to be holding a knife to an older sibling is. Matthew Vinicent, okay? It's clearly Andrew and Danny who are at fault here. But regardless, they come in, you're the one in the wrong, and what do they tell you to do? They say, you need to say, sorry, yes. And what do you do? Sorry. And maybe, it may be, you're the younger sibling, and so you're the one who's innocent in all this, obviously. And so your parents say, okay, they said sorry, now what do you say? Not welcome, another one. I forgive you. Now, hey, are these heartfelt apologies and forgiveness going on here? No, these are not heartfelt apologies or forgivenesses. Paul's reason for writing to Philemon was not to force out a faith expression of forgiveness. Paul wants Philemon to truly forgive someone. We see this in verse 8. Uh, Paul is actually setting aside his authority because he is worried that if he came as an apostle, he would force out a forgiveness that wasn't genuine. And in verse 8, uh, Paul states that he could order Philemon to do whatever he wanted to Philemon to do, but he's laying aside that authority God has given him, and he's asking Philemon, not as Paul, the apostle of Christ, but as Paul, an old man and a prisoner. And those are his words. You can see that in verse 8 there. Paul's an old man and prisoner. And in fact, from the first opening line, Paul is demonstrating to Philemon that he has come as a fellow believer and not as someone in a position of authority. In the 12 books we know for a fact Paul wrote, eight of them open with him saying, Paul, and then he goes on to describe himself as an apostle in Christ. This position, as a, of being the apostle of Christ, it has the highest authority as someone that Christ has chosen to build his church through. So I want you to look at verse 1 of Philemon. How does Paul identify himself? A prisoner in Christ. Exactly. Uh, in all his writings, this is the most humble introduction he provides because his desire is for Philemon to offer uncoerced forgiveness. So he doesn't come from authority. He says, hey, I'm just a prisoner in Christ, a prisoner for Christ, and I'm asking about this. But what drama has been going on that has resulted in Paul so humbly requesting Philemon to practice forgiveness? Well, well before verse 1 of Philemon, we've gleaned from the context clues of Philemon that one of his slaves, a man named Onesimus, had apparently stolen something from Philemon. And we, we assume it was stolen. It could be just that he stole himself. He was Philemon's slave. And so when he left, he caused Philemon to lose out financially because he didn't have that slave anymore. But uh, based on later on in Philemon, we see that uh, in verse 18, Paul tells Philemon that if Onesimus owes him anything, to charge it to Paul's personal account. Uh, there seems to be some indication that he probably did take possessions or, or money. And after running away, in an effort to disappear into the background, Onesimus takes his stolen goods and flees to the crowded city of Rome. So it's here in Rome that Onesimus, through the grace of God, meets Paul who was there during his first imprisonment, and the two of them formed a close friendship to the point that Paul describes Onesimus in verse 10 as his own child. And at the end of Colossians, Paul also includes this little statement about Onesimus in his final greeting. 
He says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Paul then goes on to say in verse 13 that he would have rather kept Onesimus by his side. Onesimus was so close to him that he was someone who brought him personal encouragement, uh, and Paul wanted to keep him there so he could have an encouragement during his imprisonment. But he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, anyway, so that Philemon can choose what to do with Onesimus. And this is where the need for forgiveness comes into play. Because according to Roman law, Philemon had the authority to have Onesimus beat. He had the authority just to treat him harshly as a master. And he even had the authority to send him off to be killed and executed. But just imagine this scene. Onesimus has traveled with a man named Titius from Rome, where Paul was imprisoned, all the way to Colossae. And this was a journey of about one month. This is probably the path they could have taken. It was 1,100 miles, give or take. This is a long journey. And he carries with him for a month a letter to the church at Colossae. That's what Titius had. And the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, Onesimus' master. For a month, Onesimus would have had time to consider that the fact that he might be walking to his own death. That he would be throwing himself before the mercy of his former master that he had defrauded and sinned against. And he walks up to his master, he probably thought he'd never see this runaway slave ever again in his entire life, and he hands him this letter of Philemon. And just imagine the emotions going on at that moment, both between Philemon and through Onesimus. And Onesimus has to stand there, possibly with Titius still by his side, possibly all by himself, and he waits to see how Philemon will react. Why would Paul have done this? Like, Paul describes Onesimus as his child in the faith. Why would he ever risk Onesimus' life like this? And he, he could have just sent a letter saying, Hey, heads up, Philemon, I have your slave here. He's super sorry. Will you forgive him? Like, he, he could have done that. Why have Onesimus physically go to his old master where he might face death? Well, one reason would be that it was the right thing to do. Regardless of what consequences came from it, going in person to be reconciled with a fellow believer was the right thing to do. In just a minute, we're going to look at the characteristics of the one who is willing to forgive others. But as Christians, we must also be the individuals who actively seek out that forgiveness when we're the ones who have wronged them. Remember what Jesus said about seeking forgiveness in Matthew 5, 23-24. He said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And again, in James 5.16, we're told, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that, w- so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. When we commit a sin against someone, it is vitally important that we seek the person out that we have wronged, and we repent to them, confessing to them how we have sinned against them. And this is so important that Christ uses his example of saying, if you're in the middle of a sacrifice, stop. Go and be reconciled. Or for a modern equivalent, I would say that we are not to partake in the Lord's Supper. 
and without having first sought forgiveness from those who have wronged us. And I, I quote uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32, which talks about partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And this can seem a little odd, right? Like when we stop and think, we go, hey, you know what? My most important relationship in the entire world ever, bar none, is what? With who? With God, absolutely. So if my relationship with God is the most important thing ever, why is God now telling me, hey, stop. Stop your worship of me. Stop your sacrifice of me. And go be reconciled to another human instead. Well, you would be right. Our relationship with God is the most important. But God tells us in 1 John 4, 20-21 that how we treat our relationships at a human level will reveal our true heart attitude toward God. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If I truly love God, I'm going to be actively seeking reconciliation with my fellow believers. And there have been times in my own life where I've had to excuse myself from partaking of the Lord's Supper because I knew that I have not obeyed God in this matter. I have not sought reconciliation with someone I have wronged. Now, does this mean that if you go and you confess and say, I have wronged you, I'm sorry, please forgive me. If that other person, if they never forgive you, does that mean you can never partake of the Lord's Supper again? Like, if God's told you, go and be reconciled, and the other person is unwilling to be reconciled, what does that leave you with? Like, where do you go from there? Uh, the answer is no. That doesn't mean you can never take the Lord's Supper again. Uh, in Romans 12, 18, we are told to be at peace with all men so far as it depends on you. Uh, we are only held accountable for our own actions, and if we earnestly and repeatedly seek forgiveness of someone we've wronged, there's, there does come a point where you recognize that you've done all you can to be at peace with them. And at that point, you are freed from this. You've, you've sought out reconciliation. You have obeyed the Lord's command. You can come back and partake in these sacraments. And, and guys, it's a hard place to be at when that's you. When you go and you try and be reconciled, and there is nothing you can do at that point. It's hard because you hate the fact that you have lost that friendship. It's hard because you know the reason you've lost that friendship is because you did something stupid there. But it's important that we pursue that reconciliation, no matter how hard it is, it's something we are instructed to do by God. And that's why Onesimus had to come in person. A letter apology was not going to cut it. When you wrong someone, you don't get to just send them a text, say, sorry, bro. That, that's not appropriate. Okay? Well, maybe it's a minor thing. You, you took a joke too far in text, you apologize, hopefully, okay, fine. But if you've truly offended someone, you can't cut it with just a letter. You need to go and seek them out at the same level that you have caused that offense. Onesimus had wronged his master, and now he had to come seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, even though Philemon had the legal authority to put him to death. But there's a second reason Paul sent Onesimus in person, and that was because Paul already had full confidence that Philemon would forgive Onesimus, because Paul knew Philemon's proven character. And this is the second section where I outline Philemon's proven character. This is verses 4 and 5. Reading again, it says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love 
and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So talking about the characteristics of the one who is now willing to forgive, the first thing to note about them is that they will be someone that other people are genuinely thankful for. And, and it's not hard to understand why in general you'd be thankful for such a person, right? Like if, if you have sinned against them bad, and they are truly willing to forgive you from the bottom of their heart, I mean, that's a wonderful place to be in. Like, obviously you're going to be thankful for that person. And David testifies to this in Psalm 30, 32, 1 and 2, when he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Someone who has a proven character for giving others will be someone you're thankful to be around and a source of constant encouragement. But I want you to notice how Paul, he wasn't just thankful in this general, like, oh man, I, I've personally been forgiven. No, it, it was broader than that. Paul was, was thankful because this forgiveness resulted in two specific characteristics that Philemon was well known for. I mean, well known to the point that Paul, way off, almost 1,200 miles in Rome, had heard about these characteristics that Philemon had all the way back in Colossae. And that was, and the two characteristics were Philemon's faith for the Lord Jesus and his love toward the saints. Now we've already talked about how 1 John 4.20, God tells us that we cannot love God at the same time hate our brother. But going beyond that, in John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I mean, guys, it's not enough that we don't hate our brothers, right? God isn't calling us to neutrality. God is calling us to love other people to the same extent that he has loved us. In the New Testament, it's filled with these one another verses, right? We've been going over it in our small groups for like almost two years now, I want to say, a year and a half at least. Uh, Things like, if we love one another, we will be devoted to one another. If we love one another, we will give preference to one another. If we love one another, we will build up one another, accept one another, bear one another's burdens. And as Ephesians 3, 2 tells us, we are to be tolerant, that is, to be forgiving towards one another. Paul was willing to send Onesimus to Philemon because he knew that Philemon had a genuine faith in Jesus that expressed itself through the love of the saints. A deep love. And as a result, Paul knew that though Onesimus had wronged Philemon, and make no mistake, guys, like this was a serious offense Philemon had done. And even though it was a serious offense, Paul knew that Philemon would be quick to forgive Onesimus because Onesimus was himself a fellow believer in Christ. And this is an important litmus test in your life, right? Like, everyone here, we're we're getting older. Especially me. There's a lot of light coming through these doors. But y'all guys are getting older too, okay? And, And as you get older, you're transitioning away from this point in your relationship with God where your parents are the ones driving it forward. And you're starting to think more deeply about your own standing in, in God. And this is a good, great thing, okay? It's something that I feel like a lot of us who grew up in a church go through, where we go, wait, am I actually in Christ? What is my confidence in right now? 
It's my confidence for my faith, the fact that I have put my faith in Christ's death and resurrection alone as the only substitute for me, where God exchanged the guiltless Son of God for me, a wretched sinner. Or is my faith in mere worthless things, things that I've done, my good deeds, me coming to church every week, some prayer I said when I was eight. So if you think you believe in Christ, but you're being plagued by this doubt, like, am I really? What is the true source of my faith? The Bible has given you several tests throughout it. It says, if you love God, then you'll do this. And one of them that he's given here to bring you some measure of peace, some measure of confidence in the validity of your faith is how do you treat other believers? Are you someone who is known as consistently and sacrificially demonstrating your love for the saints? And if you're not sure what I mean when I say that, like, what, do, what does it mean to love the saints, Matthew? I mean, I know how to love my neighbor. Jesus had this whole parable about it, the Good Samaritan. But what does it mean to, to love the other saints? Well, First Corinthians 13, uh, verses 4 and 7 lays it out for us. It says this. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account the wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, now it's like, I remember being your age dimly. I mean, it's, I mentioned the white already. My memory's going through. But I do remember being your age, okay? And I remember coming to this verse. And using it as like a, do I really love this girl? Kind of verse. Like, hey, am I patient with her? Yeah, I'm patient. Check that off. Okay. Am I kind to her? You bet I'm kind to her. I want her to like me. Okay, I got that too. And I go through the list, right? I'd be like, hey, I got to be on the list. I got all the check marks. I love this girl. And yeah, you know what? I should be loving my wife like that. I'm not perfect. I don't have all these things checked off all the time. But I should be loving my wife, or it's my wife, my wife like that. But that's not the purpose of this verse, or these verses. The purpose, when God says that we are to love others, and this is what love is, is that this is how we are to be treating everyone in this room right now. When we come to the saints, and we say, do I really love my brother in Christ? Do I really love my sister in Christ? This is where we just go to. If we love the saints, we won't hold it against them when they wrong us. Three times in these verses, when love is something, Paul specifically mentions forgiveness of some sort. If we love the saints, we'll bear all things. If we love the saints, we're not going to hold it against them when they wrong us. If we love all saints, uh, we will uh, patiently endure their persecutions against us. All these three things are mentioned in that 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 11. And we do this because we know that they are being just as forgiving towards us when we persecute them and come against them as when we forgive them. We know that we aren't coming from the position of perfection. We know that we are just as guilty as they are. And I'm not trying to say that like, if you don't immediately forgive someone, uh, you aren't saved, okay? Like, we're all fallen creatures, we're all fallen people, we deal with sin. God is refining us day by day so we can be more like him, all right? Uh, but what I am saying is if, as a consistent pattern of your life, when someone sins against you, if you are unwilling to forgive them, 
or when you sin against them, if you your pride gets bristled up, you say, no, I don't need to apologize. I did nothing wrong. It's their fault for being offended. I mean, should they really have taken offense? I was clearly joking. Like, if that's your consistent pattern where you're unwilling to seek their forgiveness when you know that what you did hurt them, and when you're unwilling to forgive them when they come to you, that's when I'm saying, guys, you need to reevaluate where you are in Christ. Because you are either one of two things. Either you are caught in a pattern of long-term sin in which Matthew 18 describes a process where people need to be coming to you so that you can be coming to repent against God, or you have no fellowship with God whatsoever because you have no love for your brother whom you've been seen. So don't try and come tell me that you love God. If this is the case, I pray that you would turn to God and confess Him as Lord over your life and believe that Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can save you from your sins. And if that is you tonight, come talk to me afterwards. Let's go pray for you. That's what we love to do. If you don't want to, you don't want to talk to me, come talk to your small group leader. Like we love it when the kids in our small group they come and say, "Hey, you know, Matt, Matt mentioned something and it's got me thinking." Like, please come talk to us. But we've gone over the introduction where we saw the who, the what, and the why. Paul was writing this letter. We've gone over Philemon's proven character. Let's briefly and quickly go over Paul's prayer and expectations. This is in verses six and seven. Paul writes. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective to the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and com- comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul's prayer is that Philemon would come to experience the same joy of fellowship with Onesimus that Paul himself was encouraged by during his imprisonment. And I say prayer, but but understand, like, Paul isn't fervently praying, Lord, please change Philemon's heart. Like, I know this is his character that he's not going to forgive. Please change his heart. That's not, that's not what Paul's doing right here. Philemon, at this moment, as he's holding Paul's letter in his hand, is undoubtedly feeling a mix of very strong emotions as he's reunited with the slave that wronged him. Paul is praying and expecting for Philemon to act in accordance with his proven character that he has heard of. It's like Paul is saying with the sins that, I know that you're probably hurting right now. But I know these three truths about your character, and I want you to remember them too, Philemon. And these three truths about Philemon, or anyone who is likewise known for their proven heart, are that they will bring joy, and they will bring comfort, and they will be a continual force of refreshment for other believers. And when I say refreshment, like, this isn't just like a cool breeze going across your skin. Like, we've been there, right? You, you've been out working in the yard, you've been out running drills, uh, you've been out doing whatever you do outside in the hot Texas sun. And out of nowhere, this northern breeze comes over, and you get this momentary refreshment as it, it passes your skin. That's not what we're talking about. Like, Paul is talking about a refreshment that goes to the very core of your being. Even when we aren't the ones being forgiven, being around a believer whose faith in God is so clearly visible in how he loves the saints, forgiving them and being reconciled with them when he is in the wrong, 
it brings joy and comfort to other believers. It's a source of refreshment to our souls. We're encouraged by their consistent faithfulness to God. But the opposite of this is true as well, right? When you encounter someone who's bitter toward other believers, you end up feeling like just wiped by that person. Every time you're with them, they always got some complaint. They always got some bitter seed in their heart that they just can't wait to spout out. And it wears you out to be around a person like that. Proverbs describes this sort of uh, person as someone who despises their neighbor and lacks common sense. So how should we be applying this to our lives? Well, this is kind of a dull one, all right? But, number one, we should be forgiving others, okay? (laughs) Duh. That's what this whole book is about. Uh, We should be practicing forgiveness. And what I mean by when I say we should be practicing, practicing forgiveness, it means that we need to go and seek out other people that we have wronged, and we need to forgive others when they come and ask us for forgiveness. And we do this because of our shared faith in Christ. Because of this shared faith in Christ, we should be willing to take those small slights and those large offenses and easily cover them over as if they had never happened to us. Second, our forgiveness should be quick. When we realize that we have sinned against others, we are to immediately stop what we're doing and go and be reconciled to them. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So this is a two-part thing, guys. When I say forgiveness should be quick, it means that we should be quick to go and ask for forgiveness. It means we should be quick to offer that forgiveness when someone comes and asks us for it. Now, when I refused to forgive my friend Mark, was I obeying the Bible? Was I following scriptures? No. no. Now, when I saw him the next time, do you think we quickly forgave each other? I don't know. Mark died. I never saw Mark again after that. We sit by five. The last words I ever said to Mark were, I hate you. God has called us to be quick to forgive. God has warned us that our lives are but fleeting vapors. We're here one moment, we're gone the next. We have no guarantee that when we leave this room tonight, we're going to get home safely. We have no guarantee that I'm going to make it to the end of the lesson before God calls us home. We are to be quick to forgive. When we come to Christ for our forgiveness, did he take a long time to forgive us? Not always. I mean, can you imagine? We come to Christ and we say, I have sinned against you. And he goes, I know. I love you, but I'm not ready to forgive you. Like, come back to me in a little bit when I've had time to process this. And maybe I'll be ready to deal with you then. Maybe I'll be ready to forgive you at that point. No, it's an immediate and complete forgiveness poured out on on us. And he doesn't forgive us just enough for that one offense. The Bible tells us that he overabundantly forgives us to cover all possible offenses we could ever commit against him. And likewise, our forgiveness of others should be overwhelmingly complete. And finally, our forgiveness needs to bring about reconciliation. Philemon could have forgiven Onesimus and sent him back to Paul. But Paul urges him here at the end of our passage tonight to experience true fellowship with Onesimus. 
In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes to the church at Corinth about a man who had caused all grief. And, and this was a man who was referenced in, in 1 Corinthians uh, as someone who's causing Paul grief. And Paul says, has nothing to do with this man. Well, apparently between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the man repented. Praise God. As they come to 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to them again saying, Okay, hey, um, quick follow-up. I'm glad that you followed my instruction, but there's something more. Something that comes after the full extent of church discipline when the person does repent to you. He says, it is sufficient for such a one is this punishment. And, and what he means by this punishment, he's talking about the excommunication. It was the final step of church discipline. The guy had been kicked out. He had come back and said, that was enough. Okay? You punished him enough. Uh, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reform your love for him. Guys, when other people sin against us, big sin, kicked out of the church sins, when they come to us in repentance, God says, restore fellowship with that person. Because such a person who comes in genuine repentance, if you refuse to forgive them, you're going to be burdening them beyond their ability. You're going to be burdening them beyond what God desires for that individual. Now, does that mean you restored him the position he's in that caused him to sin in the first place? No. no, no, no. Uh, reconciliation doesn't mean we put him right back so he can sin again. Like, if there's an alcoholic, you don't make him a street evangelizer across from a bar. Like, that'd be cruel. If someone was abusing someone else in the church, you don't put him back in a position where he could be with his abuser, abusee again. Reconciliation does come at a cost, or sin comes at a cost, but we are to have fellowship with them again. We are not to cut them off. When we restore our fellowship with them, it's important that we encourage them in their walk as they fall into sin again. Because proper Christ-honoring forgiveness is the very foundation of unity in the church. This forgiveness, when we go and seek others when we wrong them, when we forgive those who wrong us, there will be nothing that the church cannot withstand. And without forgiveness, the church will tear itself apart down to its very foundation. Let's go and pray together. Father, we thank you for your Bible that you have entrusted to us through the hands of faithful men. We thank you that in its pages you display all the messy drama of life and both the sinful responses to that drama as well as the responses that glorify your name. Father, I pray that we would be like fighting men, men and women who are known for their great love of other believers, who bring joy and comfort to those around us, knowing that when they sin against us, we will be quick to forgive them and be reconciled with them rather than beat them about to their pain. I pray that we would be unified in our shared faith in you, such that anyone who comes to our gatherings would be amazed at our great love for one another and glorify your name. Father, we love you and we ask this in your son's name. Amen.